A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Okay, that's it. Dunzo. That, that is uh, our crowdfunding campaign for 2020. You're not going to hear me get into detail about this stuff for another 11 months. You'll hear me say, you know, if, if you like our stuff, support us, and here's how to do it. But I'm not going to talk about it in detail. You've heard the pitch. If, if I haven't convinced you yet, I don't know what I'm going to say now that's going to convince you. You've heard me talk about our journalism, our plans for the year ahead, just talking about, like, the fun stuff that we put out, interesting stories. Cool Mules was such a great podcast that we made with people's support. There's no point in me getting into all of that if you haven't been convinced yet. I still want you here. I still want you here. If you have heard all of this and have been unmoved, we still want listeners. That's what everybody else is paying for. They're paying for way more people to get access to this stuff. You are welcome at this party. But it's a bit awkward, isn't it? Isn't it awkward hearing me say this again and again? You're like, nah, not gonna. It's 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 awkward for you as much as it is for me. I mean, imagine, if you will, a dinner party where your presence is is genuinely requested. We want you at the party, but you know, people bring a bottle of wine to a dinner party. And if you just forget or you don't have time once, no big deal. You know, we want your company, not your wine. But like the second, third, fourth time you come with nothing, I don't know, people notice it. And no one's going to feel more weird about that than you. So I'm not talking with this final message about what you can do for me. I'm trying to offer you something. I don't want you to feel so awkward anymore when you listen to Canada Land. I want you to feel like you are contributing to other people getting Canada Land, bring a bottle of wine, 
kick in five bucks a month. Come on. Kick in five bucks a month. That's like a fancy coffee, for goodness sake. Do it at canadaland.com slash join. And if this analogy, the dinner party, the wine, if that sounds familiar to you, if you are picking up on the fact that I have delivered this exact same spiel one year ago and actually a year before that, that's on you, my friend. Why Why do you need to hear me use that same analogy year after year? You wouldn't be hearing it if you were a Canada Land supporter. We want you here. We want listeners. We want readers. We definitely need supporters. Thank you. We have hit so many of our goals. As I record this now, we're still working towards our stretch goal of getting a permanent British Columbia reporting beat. I think that would be wonderful. Kick in at canadaland.com slash join. And I'll tell you more about it in a year. In August, we first told you about the occupation of a development site in Caledonia, Ontario, right next to Six Nations of the Grand River, the most populated First Nations reserve. The housing development is known as Mackenzie Meadows, and it's being developed by a company called Foxgate. Protesters from Six Nations occupied it in July, stopping construction. They have been there ever since, and they renamed it 1492. Landback Lane. Carl Dockstadter and Sean Vanderklis started to report what was going on there before this made national headlines, which it did after the Ontario Provincial Police raided the site on August 5th. In September, Carl was charged with mischief and disobeying a court order for covering the story. And as part of the conditions of his release, he was prohibited from even going to the site. He hasn't been convicted of anything, but the law prevented him from doing his job as a reporter. As we publish this, protesters have been occupying the site at 1492 Landback Lane for 120 days. Back on October 22nd, while everybody else was focused on the U.S. election, an Ontario Superior Court judge granted the developers a permanent injunction against the encampment, and things escalated. Confrontations between police and protesters broke out, windows were smashed, protesters were shot with rubber bullets and tasers, and roads into Six Nations were dug up and barricaded. The dynamics at play here will sound familiar. There is a land claim, with a basis in law that stretches back to a time before Canada existed. The Haldeman Tract was granted to Six Nations of the Grand River by the British in 1784 for allying with them during the American Revolution. But today, 38 municipalities in Ontario sit on that land. Six Nations filed a lawsuit against Ontario and Ottawa over the lost lands in 1995. That trial is scheduled for 2022. Depending on whose side you're on, you can either see the protesters as superseding that court process through force by deciding to occupy 1492 Landback Lane, or you can make that exact same charge against Foxgate for pushing into contested land with a housing development project before the court has resolved things, based on a deal that they struck with the elected Six Nations Council, a deal that did not include the consent of traditional Six Nations government, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy Chiefs Council. 
If you have been following the conflict over pipelines in Wet'suwet'en territory, or the conflict over Mi'kmaq fishing rights in Nova Scotia, or to anyone who followed the 2006 Douglas Creek Estates conflict also at Caledonia, you may be experiencing deja vu. We have been here before. And as for what happens next, historically determined odds would suggest that things are stuck on a course for more violence, more criminalization, and more conflict. Well, Carl Dockstadter and Sean Vanderkliss are back with me to explain why that might happen and what it would take to stop doing this again and again and again. Their latest report from 1492 Landback Lane in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by James Huff, Arachel Abella, Carlos Pacheco, Victoria Brzozowski, Ian Sinclair, Brett Reeb, Greg Johnston, and Tori. Hi, my name is Tori, and I am a mental health and addictions nurse in Prince George, B.C. I started giving my money to Canada Land because I find that it can be tricky at times to be a progressive-minded person in a more conservative part of the country. And Canada Land helps me explore topics that, frankly, I would completely miss if I were relying solely on the media that's available to me here locally. So thank you, Canada Land. You helped me think, and for that, I am truly grateful. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Hi, Sean. How's it going, Jesse? I'm good. Hi, Carl. Welcome back to both of you. Thanks for having us back. 
Last time we spoke in August, uh, you both told me about the occupation of a development site in Caledonia, Ontario, right next to Six Nations, known as 1492 Landback Lane. You had started reporting what was going on there before it made it to national news headlines. And then, Carl, you got arrested while covering the story. We are three months later. It's mid-November. People are still occupying that site at 1492 Landback Lane. A few weeks ago, while the entire world was sort of monofocused on the U.S. election, tensions spiked. There was a confrontation between the police and protesters. What has been happening? Please bring us up to speed. So it really starts on October 22nd. Uh, The court system was to give a ruling on whether or not to make the injunction permanent and to determine who was uh, responsible for for the costs associated with making that injunction permanent. Both Carl and I traveled to 1492 Landback Lane to participate and watch the, uh, the court proceedings live. Hold on a second. Carl, I thought that when you were arrested, your bail conditions prohibited you from even going back to 1492 Landback Lane, that they, they basically blocked you from reporting on this any further. So how were you able, was this an act of civil disobedience on your part? How, how were you able to go back? I'm not making any kind of a confession on the air here. My counsel was actually able to get me a variation in mid-October that allowed me to go back and report from 1492 Landback Lane. So under that condition, I was able to go back. Okay, there was, there's nothing to confess. You were allowed to go back. I, I want to take a second, actually, just to remind people about how strange this was. Um, and, and this is something that, that uh, our news editor found remarkable enough to write up a post about it. But the way in which you were prohibited to report, I mean, that alone is, is concerning that you haven't been convicted of anything, but they effectively were able to temporarily stop you from reporting. But it wasn't a judge who made that determination. Uh, it was this invocation of a new police power whereby when they arrested you, rather than say, okay, you're under arrest, we're taking you to jail for the night. Instead, the cops are like, you're under arrest, but you can go home and sleep in your own bed, but just sign here and accept these conditions. And one of those conditions is you can't come back, uh, which prevented you from reporting. Uh, and, and, and this was something that was a power that was handed to police, I think with things like domestic abuse cases in mind. But in this case, it wasn't like an abused spouse. It was a piece of land. Yeah, that's right. In the in the piece that Shannon Carey and Jonathan Goldsby did, they spoke to Jonathan Rudin, who said that this type of measure was put in to simplify the process and to keep people from having to go through the bail court. What ended up happening as a result, though, is it handed power over to the police. And in this case, the police said, I can't go to Lambac Lane. I mean, that, that's just remarkable that cops can do that unilaterally. Um, but I'm glad to hear that that was dealt with by, by your attorney. Um, back to the injunction you went back to 1492 Landback Lane to, to to hear the results of that with everybody who was on site there. Uh, and this is what takes us to the events of October 22nd. Sean, what was the outcome of this injunction? Pick this up where we left off. So the judge essentially made the decision that uh, lands do belong to Foxgate Developments, period, um, meaning that they're in control. They've determined that no other people have access to said lands. The basis of the decision was on the fact that land defenders weren't really following the right court process. And in doing so, the judge made this ruling. And he said, I find that it is an abusive process for Skylar Williams, the leader of those that are occupying the subject lands, to come to this court and state that he does not belong in this colonial court. And that he will continue to be in open and flagrant defiance of any orders that are made. And what ended up happening shortly thereafter is that Skyler tried to respond and tried to to say his piece, but the judge muted him, essentially, and said, you have no ability to speak in this court. And it sent a clear message to the Haudenosaunee people. And it was essentially that they weren't going to get their day in court. So the judge made this decision, um, excluded Skyler from participating in the court process, and then continued on the court proceedings as if nothing happened. So... 
that sets the scene. And after Justice Harper made the ruling, it deflated the mood in the entire community, the people that we were in and around. Everybody knew that a ruling was coming. They had a pretty good idea which way it was leaning, but but it made it definitive. It closed the door to dialogue. Really, it, it slammed the door to dialogue shut. So we talked to Skyler. Uh, we actually headed out to Lambac Lane and spoke to him. You'll you'll hear a little bit of music in the background because we went to one of the many Landback support concerts and uh, we got his perspective on what happened. Uh, so after our court date, uh, that seen the permanent injunction put in place for 1492 Landback Lane, the police decided to antagonize the situation by sitting at the the door to not only our community but also the back door to uh, Landback Lane. And so on that day, there was a couple of OPP cars. When they were asked to leave, they said that they were there to arrest some people. Several people from the community that just happened to be driving by had stopped and said, hey, like, you guys are antagonizing things. Like, it's already a tense situation. You guys just shot at our people a couple of months ago. Like, you guys need to move on. Like, uh, somebody's going to take offense to you guys being here. After that, the couple of guys approached them that fit my description and one of the other guys that has warrants. And so... When the cops got out to arrest them, they shot rubber bullets at them as they ran away. Uh, one guy got hit with a rubber bullet, another with a taser. As they ran away, the shots kept on ro- rolling out, out of their uh, rubber bullet gun there. It, it was it was quite the scene that day. So this came to my attention three days after this all unfolded. It was on October 25th that the OPP's commissioner, Thomas Carrick, tweeted out, Protesters falsely blamed OPP for escalation in Caledonia. Extremely proud of my officers for their professional and measured response to keep the peace and preserve life while under attack. Arrests continue as members take responsible and sustained enforcement approach. Um, All those words, though, of course, I think got a lot less attention than the video that accompanied them. And the male with camo is throwing rocks at us. They haven't hit yet. And I, who's throwing rocks? Male party with camel and within uh, lacrosse stick is hitting our cruiser. Authorize the arrest, Mike Knight and Tesla. Windshield of our cruiser's broken. And to watch this, uh, this, this video clip tells a, a very different story than what Skyler just said. I mean, w- what you see here is just this footage taken from within a patrol car where an OPP car just looks like it's being beset by these two hostile individuals who are smashing the windows. And so we don't know what happened before that footage was was shot. We don't know what happened afterwards. Do I take it from what Skyler said that after that footage in which the cops are patient and passive and just sitting there, and it actually seems scary because, you know, the camera's inside the car, so you feel like you're inside the car. The cops got out of the car and shot with rubber bullets and a taser. If the footage had continued, is that what we would have seen? That's what's disputed in different people's versions of what happened. And that's what we tried to clarify with Skyler. The impression I get is the OPP is saying that, yeah, they were practicing vigilance and they got provoked by these two guys coming up. And then Skyler's version is more along the lines of they asked them nicely to leave and they didn't leave things escalated. And the next thing you know, rubber bullets are flying, tasers are being used and the roads being shut down. I'm curious about the the release of this video um, in in a kind of a meta way that's not just about um, 
is that the whole side of the story? Is there more to it? What, what actually went into that uh, attack? Was it provoked? I'm just curious about it in terms of just like questioning, like, wait a second. The OPP is like, oh, the protesters are saying that we were violent and we were shooting. Um, we're going to get involved in this PR battle for who's going to look good and who's going to look bad. I mean, ultimately, the legality of these things, if it needs to be, you'd figure it would be would be debated in a court of law. But I'm not I'm not familiar with the OPP commissioner getting involved in the court of public opinion. That has incredible inflammatory potential. And I, and we went through the OPP commissioner's Twitter account, and we couldn't find anything else like that where he's kind of like trying to prove that his cops are in the right. Well, I mean, that's what threw us off, too, is that we've never seen anything like this release from the OPP ever before. And for them to release a clip that is relatively, what, short in length, I think it was 65 seconds in length, um, it only captures a moment in time. And what we, we as journalists are left to wonder is what happened before and what happened after. Yeah, I reached out to them and the OPP had a very different account. They confirmed that the video was from October 22nd, so that that is the day that the roads were shut down. Rod LeClaire, who is the provincial constable who does media relations and community safety, said that the OPP members were stationed on Argyle Street south in Caledonia in order to keep the peace in Caledonia. Contrary to various versions of the events, the OPP did not fire multiple rounds and were not shooting across the street. Once the cruiser was attacked, as seen in the video, officers attempted to affect areas and were met with a larger group of demonstrators throwing rocks and pieces of wood. A single round from the Arwen slash rubber projectile was deployed and a single attempt was made to use a conducted energy weapon, Taser, in response to the actions of the protesters. The social media post that was issued by the OPP sought to clarify misinformation that had been circulating on various social media sites that suggested that the OPP had responded in a violent way to escalate the situation in Caledonia. To date, our response has been measured and appropriate given the situation. To suggest that the actions taken by demonstrators at the site are caused by the OPP is factually incorrect and serves only to increase tensions towards our officers at the scene. I, I think that's worth just seizing upon that because if we're in a situation now where the OPP are like looking at Facebook and they don't like, you know, somebody makes a claim that is false or that they'd consider false. So they're like, well, we're going to set the record straight and they do what, what people do when they're making their case in the media. They, you know, cherry pick and selectively release their side of the story. It feels to me like an incitement to, to take the temperature way up on this whole thing. But returning to the actual question of, of these two conflicting accounts, uh, it, it does seem like there's a very big gap between what the police say happened and what the protesters say happened. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that as journalists we we try to do. So we we interviewed Skylar Williams, and we've heard from him. We we reached out to the OPP, and we've heard from them. And then we we also talked to some of the other land defenders who were there. And what they're saying is that the Haudenosaunee women asked the officers to leave. They were on territory that is highly contentious, and, and so they, they took the time to ask them to leave, and unfortunately they didn't, and that's when things escalated. After the interaction with the police, our people were pushed out of here yet again as more and more police arrived on the scene there as the rubber bullets were flying. More of our people started to show up, and myself I had got there as well. We managed to walk them out of the, out of the area, and... Uh, once again, our people were shot at, and, and so, and so after that, the roads were shut down, both Mackenzie and Argyle Street, as well as the bypass. 
what what has the reaction been from non-Indigenous Caledonians? I, I have to imagine they're watching this all very closely. Yeah, so I ended up staying pretty late that night. I was actually on my way out after Sean and I had covered the reaction to the court proceeding. And and then as, as I was sitting in Tim Hortons on my way out, I could see cop cars just coming out of nowhere and lining up on, on Argyle Street. So I ran towards the action and uh, I watched a lot of things unfold and a lot of things that Skylar was describing and, and the disarray. Uh, but the, the last thing I did at the end of the night was was because I happened to be parked on the other side of the, the barricade, I came through and there was a crowd of Caledonians. There aren't normally a large cluster of people that gather there, but there were people from the town that were watching. And one of them started to sort of talk at me and he had something he wanted to say. So so I asked if I could record him and I uh, have the tape here. Why is this going on? Why, why, why are everybody else that just taxpaying citizens being involved in your problems? What do you mean by my problems? Well, I understand you guys have a claim dispute and everything like that, but that has nothing to do with the taxpaying citizens. I was affected back in 2006 when this happened. Now, where's the hydro? Like, the hydro just went out. I'm assuming something's going on up there with the hydro. Okay. Why? Why is it? Why is it come to this? Why can't I drive down a uh, highway yeah. in Ontario? Yeah. Well, no, I'm asking you. Oh, you wanted to talk to me, sir. You were, you were talking. So well, I'm, I asked I'm, I'm if you wanted to go. An- I'm looking for answers. Okay. No, I, I have spoken to some to some elders that have come into my restaurant, and they don't agree with what's going on right now. They don't agree with the, the violence that's going on and, the, and yep. the terrorism that's going on. They don't agree with this. This is the young kids who are trying to make a point, and all they're doing is making a force for the people of Caledonia and the relations between the Six Nations and the Caledonia people. Okay. This has got to stop. This is they've got yeah, to, it's go, to go to Parliament, worse. go to Ottawa, do this stuff there. They, they're the ones that it's the government that's that's screwing everybody. You know, and I, 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 yes, I sympathize with with Six Nations and with the Caledonia people, but this has got to stop. This is doing nothing but making people angry, you know, and and now now there's no power. So what's going to happen when we, when we lose our food again? Because we, when we live over here, we don't get anything. We don't get any reimbursements. So, I mean, this needs to stop. Yeah. It's not the way to resolve it. No, this isn't going to resolve anything. It's just going to make things worse. And I feel sorry for the OPPs. They, they shouldn't be put in this position where they may have to draw their guns against the natives you know and everything going on like Facebook. that. That's fine. Wow. Um, I just want to remark on what I just heard. You know, the, the sense of grievance there and, and the grievance about um, terrorism and violence, the only bodies that I'm aware of being harmed throughout this conflict uh, have been indigenous bodies being tasered and, and, and struck with rubber bullets. The effect on... Everyone else, as far as I understand, has been like inconvenience. And he's talking about the cops may have to draw their guns against the natives. Yeah, I think because things are so emotional, maybe people say things they wouldn't they wouldn't normally say. And a lot of what they had to say is is definitely concerning, you know, calling calling them the natives. But I mean, I also want to point out that they just want an answer too, and that while I don't agree with with some of the things they said and the way they said them, that the sense I got from them and from a couple more people that I talked to after I shut my camera off <laughs> is that people just want this to end and they don't see any end in sight. I mean, it's interesting, the, the, the concession made there is like, oh, you might have a legitimate issue with Ottawa, go bother them in Ottawa. Um, why, why should my peace be, be, be disturbed by this? Um, there's a bit of a point buried in there. I mean, what, what does the federal government have to say about this? We, we've reached out about four times to each office, both the Minister of Indigenous Services, Mark Miller, and the Minister of Indigenous and Crown Relations, Carolyn Bennett, and, and we've gotten a standard reply. 
in the standard reply, I mean, it talks about how they're actively, uh, to, to quote Minister Bennett's office, it says, we are actively working with the community and look forward to meeting at the earliest opportunity. Our government has been working with First Nations communities across the country to rebuild our relationship based on the affirmation of rights, respect, cooperation, and partnership. But those words aren't followed up by any actions. So what we ended up doing is we reached out to Beverly Jacobs, who is the former president of the Native Women's Association of Canada. And she was very instrumental back in 2006 with the Douglas Creek Estates uh, land dispute. And she took it upon herself then to reach out to Carolyn Bennett, the, at the time, critic of Indigenous Affairs or whatever the name of the portfolio was at that time. There was an opportunity you know, to bring her in and to meet so that she could hear firsthand about the responsibilities that we have and the relationship to the land and the impacts of colonization, the impacts of the Indian Act and residential school issues, right? I trusted her. I trusted her to bring her into the community. There isn't a lot of people that I do that with. I remember saying to the women in the community, even the clan mothers, and saying, you know, she's the critic of Indian Affairs. If it changes hands and the government becomes a liberal, she could be the next Minister of Indian Affairs. And I remember that, you know, at that time, the mother's thinking, oh, well, yeah, then we should have a conversation with her. I actually do believe that she really wanted to learn. So my disappointment with what's happening now when there's no reaction, no response, that's disappointing to me. Because, because it was a, a relationship of respect that I thought was there. And, I, and now it's, it's, I feel very disrespected because I took a lot of time to, uh, to try to educate her. I mean, her sense of disappointment is palpable there. You can hear it in just the way she talks about this and having gotten to know her and trusted her. But, but what, what, what would the opposite of that look like? What does Bev Jacobs want to see happen Concretely, now that Carolyn Bennett isn't the isn't the critic, she's the minister of Crown Indigenous Relationships. For that matter, what do fourteen ninety two Landback Lane protesters want? I mean, the land defenders clearly want want dialogue, and it. I mean, this this comes on the heels of what happened in the court decision. I'm not even sure that people were so much disappointed with the outcome of the court decision, which they clearly were. But but I think a bigger piece of that was that they they were unheard. When you listen to what Bev Jacobs just said, it's it's the same thing. Like she brought Carolyn Bennett into her trust, and and now here we are at a time when she really needs her. And people have been reaching out and saying, "Will you help?" And there's nothing but a standard response that that comes out. So we put the question to Bev Jacobs about a nation-to-nation relationship and Indigenous sovereignty. We asked her, "Does this exist in the current context of Canada and and Indigenous relationships?" And this is what she had to say. I don't think they respect that nation-to-nation relationship because for them it's about power. Um, and even the courts have said it. If there's a conflict between the rights of Indigenous people and Canadian sovereignty, then Canadian sovereignty will is the supreme power. So, you know, the, the history of our treaty relationships are already disrespected and violated. They have to acknowledge that they've benefited from stealing our land. It's coming to terms with that and saying, okay, yeah, I know that my ancestors did that. So how can we restore a healthy relationship? How can we restore the trust? And that, and to me, that's like the basic beginnings of reconciliation. They want to talk about reconciliation. 
that's that's what it is. You know, I, I've done a, a lot of work on the principles of of a violent relationship. So I've I've equated the Canadian government as an abuser because they've had power and control over our people. And when you're a victim of violence and you wake up and you say, that's enough of that, that's enough of that power and control. And I'm going to stand up and I'm going to take power back. I'm going to take my power back. And that means my relationship to my land and my people and my territory. And you, abuser, need to acknowledge that. You need to understand that. And you need to tell me how you're going to restore the harm that you've done. Is you can apologize all you want, but until I actually see some action that you are, are making yourself better to not be an abuser anymore, then I know that I can trust you and that you will make things better. So it's their actions that, that's going to make a difference. You know, to broaden this out a little bit, it's just a series of flare-ups and conflicts between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And in so many cases, it just feels like it's just this inaction by the federal government. The OPP putting a patrol car on land that they are told is their land to patrol, and then even with the court handing that injunction, like, unless they're given guidance and, and longstanding issues are resolved, going back many, many years by the federal government— what other outcome could we expect from these lower powers? That's part of the problem is is that we live in a system and a society where Indigenous people's lives are governed to the T. We are told who our community is. We are told where our membership is. We're told how to live our lives, how we can use our land, so on and so forth, to the point where we have no real freedom and no real control. And then once the federal government makes a decision that is relatively in our favor, like reaffirming the Mi'kma'ki fishing rights out in the East Coast, what we see is inaction. The government does nothing to implement this. And that's part of the frustration that exists now is that Indigenous people are stuck waiting for a solution that has come, but the federal government fails to react and respond to. It's interesting, you know, those locals, uh, Carl, that you interviewed, they're like sympathetic to the degree of like, go take your issue to Ottawa. Maybe you've got a legitimate issue. I wonder what would be different if they saw it as like, they're the ones who are sort of on the front lines of like, when First Nations communities get fed up and take action, it's not the federal government that gets inconvenienced by that or is just made to feel tense about that. It's the local settler communities who invariably get angry at the Indigenous protesters, but really they're being set up for those conflicts. There's almost like a, a, a case for common cause. Like, I don't have a lot of sympathy, like when you talk about in Nova Scotia, some of the thuggery that the local uh, fishermen are, are, are taking it upon themselves to make life miserable for the Mi'kmaq fishermen uh, in that lobster conflict. Um, but, you know, it's, it's easier to get angry at those kind of on-the-ground racists than it is to kind of like actually turn our sights towards the federal government, which is kind of like we could have predicted every one of these conflicts because they've let this stuff just sort of dangle. Yeah, like none of this started yesterday. And all of this was was happening through several several levels of government, but the underlying issues are so similar. And so that's what happens is whether you like the Caledonians or not, I mean, it, it's hard to disagree with what they said about how this, this should have been dealt with on, on a higher level, and it should have been dealt with a, a while ago. Carl, you, you were back at Six Nations uh, just a few days ago on the weekend of November 7th. What did you see there? What was the scene like? And this is what I'm interested in. Because part of this does feel to me like a waiting game and a game of attrition, this occupation. What is going to happen when winter sets in? 
Yeah, it's key that we went there for this story, that we've gone there for the other stories that we've done for for One Dish, One Mike, because it, it doesn't look like what I think people associate with a protest site. I mean, there there was a concert with, with Logan Stotts happening and, and some other performers. You know me, I'm a believer in. You know me, I couldn't leave her. You know me. There was spoken word poetry, like, but... But most importantly, the the atmosphere there was a sense of community. And from the time we first went there, right after July 19th up until now, that's that's the key, is that there's a direct connection between this land back reclamation and the heart, spirit, and soul of the community of, of Six Nations. And, and you can feel that. When you go there, it's not really about police or fighting over who the government is. It's it's about sitting around a fire and listening to, to Gossanio Williams do spoken word poetry. And as a people, we have a long way to go, my girls. I wish I could love you as if we were already there. But I will love you open, broken, mother you as if you were earth and moon, land and water, intentionally. My daughters, I will love you. Thank you. Guys, one thing I'm curious about is what what's the last thing we've heard from the company from Foxgate about this? I mean, this was so predictable that it was actually baked into their contract. I mean, you reported that to me last time that they they actually have clauses in this land development deal for what should happen if there is indigenous resistance to this development. So what, what, what's their last word on this? I think their you know, actions speak louder than their words. They they made the decision to follow through with the permanent injunction. That permanent injunction was issued. They have since then made the decision to appeal to the court for costs of going to court for the permanent injunction, and that has been granted. Uh, if you ask me and I had to answer, it would be that they have full intentions of proceeding with this. But, you know, I, I take it, you know, from what you told me, they haven't blinked, um, but... I've seen pictures of the site. I mean, it, it, it's one thing to think of a community-based occupation and people celebrating and spoken word poetry and people just like, you know, taking a stand and, and, and living there. Um, but this resistance is backed up with heavy machinery. Six Nations is large and has resources and has skills. And I've seen pictures of uh, construction gear. The, the occupiers have the ability to thwart development if they want to, right? And and they've, they've used that machinery to, to dig up the roads and, and to set up 1492 Landback Lane. It would be complicated for the development just to proceed. You know, could Six Nations people halt the development? Probably, and I think the police even came out and, and said that. So, what, you know, what recourse is, is left for, for the developer? You know, I, I don't know, um, but I, they, they baked this into their contract. So they had, they had some inkling that things were going to go this way. I could see construction going forward, you know, one of two ways. Either winter sets in and, and the occupation just dwindles out and, and people, you know, it gets too cold and people go home and then construction can proceed. It doesn't seem like that's likely. Uh, the other way that that could happen is just through a crackdown, right? Uh, the, the the cops could come in. It seems like OPP releasing this video is laying the groundwork for that, getting public opinion on their side. They could go in on another raid, rubber bullets fly, tasers, uh, smash some skulls. Maybe somebody gets killed. That's happened before. And that clears the way for the development to proceed. It doesn't do anything about the underlying tensions. It probably means that something worse is going to happen down the, down the road. Um, but, but, you know, 
that is a path to the developer getting their way, or the the uh, Six Nations could get their way, and the protesters could get their way just by uh, kind of a war of attrition of outlasting uh, the the you know just this resolve uh, could ultimately make the company just get fed up with this whole thing, and it doesn't really matter what the federal government says about it because if you don't have a developer there to develop, then this de facto just goes back into the into the gray zone. But the hydro is put back on, the roads are unblocked, and people go li- back to life as as normal. That's that's what I'm wondering, but but either one of those two outcomes you described are are not something that that's going to end well for some people. The, the, there is an other outside possibility here, which is that the federal government actually deals with this long outstanding stuff and provides clarity and addresses the, the, the these the historical questions that have just been left dangling. But that does seem to me to be the least likely outcome. I mean, what's the point of having a government if if they're not going to step in at some point? What's at, the, what's at the crux of this is if the government is going to acknowledge the sovereignty of the Haudenosaunee people or, or not. But I, I put that question to Skylar. I don't think they can. I don't think they, I, I don't think they can. I don't think they can legally to be able to say that we respect you as nations and we are going to honor those nation-to-nation relationships because either they would go broke or they'd be on a boat somewhere on the coast saying, all right, guys, we fucked up. Time to get back on the boat. Because that's what respecting that would mean, is that they would either be broke or back on the boat. So you know what? I, I, I can't see that happening today or tomorrow, but we'll see. For me and my parents and my grandparents and my kids, like they all know that we're a nation unto ourselves and we ain't going nowhere. So uh, we're going to continue that fight. And if we don't fight, you know, our kids aren't even going to have an argument for the land. There isn't even going to be anything said by the time they're, it's their turn. I can at least give them a fighting chance. And so I hope to put those spurs to them when, you know, my grandkids, my great-grandkids come to this land and are, can appreciate what our people fought for and for what I'm most certainly going to pay for my freedom with. Because at some point here, I'm going to be in the hands of those OPP over there. And um, I can't imagine that they're going to go real lightly on me when I get into their courts. Um, Skyler's, uh, response is his response and, and I, I have no problem presenting it, but what he is saying here is that Canada cannot really, uh, truly ever enter into a nation to nation relationship because that would mean either going bankrupt or like everyone getting on a boat and, and, uh, non-Indigenous people leaving Canada. So that's his position, which is entitled to, but I, 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 I don't think that that's something that is widely shared. Like, I believe that, that there is a conception that there is a way of uh, recognizing nation to nation that, uh, like, you know, <laughs> is compatible with uh, peaceful coexistence and the continuation of Canada as a nation state. I mean, I think fundamentally what we've said for the last, like, half an hour is is that Canada can't, like, Canada can't honor these agreements. They really can't. Like, I, I we've we've made that case, like, like, Indigenous people are having to do these things on their own from government to government to government to government. So that, I mean, that's how I interpret what, what Skylar Williams had to say. And, and I, again, especially with the silence from the government, I don't know what the path forward could be. And if, and if I knew what that path forward was, then, then I would present it right here, right now in this episode for Canada Land's listeners. But no one's shown me that script. What what I heard from Skyler was not um, they haven't, but they should. What I heard from Skyler was like they can't because then Canada would cease to exist. 
or, 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 you know, be bankrupt or people would have to leave, which is, which is different than what you just said, which seems to be there's no reason based on Canada's actions to believe that Canada will. Uh, it hasn't, but uh, except when forced to. Those are different points. I think the issue is that we're putting Canadian standard of the interpretation of, of treaties and agreements on Indigenous people. And I think that's what Schuyler's attempting to make, is that should we follow these treaties to the T, that there is no way that Canada could live up to those obligations. Um, from an Indigenous perspective, there's there may be a path forward that doesn't require your the Canadian government to fully live up to those financial obligations, that we could work around it. But in order to, for us to actually work around it and to come up with a possible solution is for us to sit down at a table and have these conversations. And to me, if you ask me what this is about, it's about the Canadian government's inability or unwillingness to have these tough, difficult conversations. Part of the problem of the Canadian government is their memory only lasts for how long they are in power. Uh, we have a member of parliament here in Niagara, Chris Biddle, who, who went on the record saying that, what do you want me to do about things that happened while I was in high school? I'm like, well, Chris, you, you, you are a member of parliament. Your job is to rectify the past mistakes of your government. And Indigenous people, we don't see a liberal government. We don't see a conservative government or an NDP government. We see the government of Canada. And the government of Canada has entered into these, to these agreements. And the government of Canada fails to live up to these agreements. And the government of Canada fails to even have these discussions about these agreements. Carl, Sean, thank you. That is your Canada Land. If you like this show, go to canadaland.com slash join. This is it, the end of the campaign. Get your socks, they're going quick. You can find that link in the show notes as well, canadaland.com slash join. Email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. Sign up for the newsletter on our website. You'll get recommendations from our whole team and you will find out everything we've put out each week. This episode was produced and reported by Carl Dockstetter and Sean Vanderkliss with additional production from Trevor Twinning. It was edited and mixed by Gabe Knox. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. And our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. 
but not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.